preach the word in season preach the word out of season preach the word with great patience and instruction preach with patience preach with patience and instruction the following message is brought to you by baltimore bible church For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. And as we prepare to look at God's Word together, will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we do thank you for this opportunity to be together, fellowshipping with one another. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the... the bonds that tie together Baltimore Bible Church and Grace Community Church in Delaware. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the, the spirit-produced unity that these two congregations have so that we can uh, serve together, minister together, help one another, serve one another, and encourage one another. Lord, we pray that you would continue to deepen those bonds of unity as the world seeks to rip itself apart, that we might be joined together to Christ and joined together with one another. Even now, we pray that you would unify our hearts around your word. We pray for the reception of the word that, that those who hear might believe. If there's anyone listening today who's, who's never believed in Christ, we pray that you would bring them to salvation this very day. And for those of us who have believed in Christ, we pray that you would continue to deepen our convictions about the truth and deepen the clarity that we have from your truth. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen. We can turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where we'll be this afternoon. And just a word of warning, I will be preaching from the ESV. I understand that normally you would be reading from the NAS, so there are a few small differences. Uh, Under the time constraints, I didn't have time to change the notes into the NAS. I just trust you can be patient with me. But this afternoon, we'll be looking at John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. And I've titled today's sermon, The Response to Regeneration. You see, in John chapter 3, John is writing about Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, and, and he's allowing his readers to take the time to consider what it means to be born again, what it means to be born from above. Theologians would refer to this as the doctrine of regeneration. And it's called regeneration because it's a new birth, re, that leads to new life, generation. And that's really what John chapter 3 is about. It's about the new birth that's offered to us by God's sovereign grace. And and that's what we're going to study, at least the, the last portion of this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. But I'm going to read the whole thing for you. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'll read down to verse 15, and then we're going to come back and we're going to study verses 9 through 15 together. So look with me. This is God's holy word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I know all of you don't know me, but one personal fact about my life, a little Paul Shirley trivia for you, is that I'm actually allergic to bananas. That's right, bananas. I know it's strange. Everybody says, well, that's strange. I've never heard of that. I know, now you have. I've got to be very careful about eating bananas. I mean, when I say I'm allergic, I'm talking about, you know, your throat closes up, your tongue goes numb, you know, anaphylactic shock, allergic to bananas. In fact, just recently, I was on a a missions trip, a preaching trip to South Africa, and and while I was there, I constantly just had to keep asking people, hey, look, there's no bananas in this, right? Because you would be shocked. I am, as a person afflicted with an allergy to bananas, I am shocked at what people will throw bananas into. Like every dessert, you can have the with banana or without banana version of it, and I always choose the without banana. But here I am traveling all throughout the country, and these dishes get served to me. I don't know what they are, so I asked, is there any banana in it? And people look at me like I'm crazy. No, of course there's no banana in that. Why would you ask that? Well, I'm allergic. How allergic? This is how allergic. Well, that's strange. I know it's strange. (laughs) I got it. We probably did that three or four dozen times on the trip. And I mentioned that to you this afternoon because I was, I was thinking about how my body responds to bananas. It kind of reminds me of the way that some people respond to God's sovereignty and salvation. It's almost like they have a theological allergy to the idea that God's grace in our life is in any way sovereign. Now, usually the strongest reactions against God's sovereignty and our salvation are reserved for the doctrine of election. What do you mean that God predestined me? What what that must mean is that in eternity past, he looked into the future and saw my faith or my faithfulness and then chose me based on that. That's what you mean, right? No, that's not what we mean. (laughs) That can't be so that God would just choose People have such a a strong aversion to this doctrine. But it's not only the doctrine of election. See, 
many people are equally opposed to the doctrine of regeneration. This idea from John chapter 3 that we must be born again. You see, as Jesus teaches it in John chapter 3, Jesus is clear that, that this saving work of regeneration, this saving gift of new birth, it is a sovereign grace of God. In fact, regeneration is just as much a sovereign grace of God as election is. Nicodemus was told by Jesus, you need to be born again. Literally, you need to be born again, but from above. The fact that you need to be born from above means that you below can't do it. Who must do it? God must do it. To be, to be born from above, to be reborn, is to be sovereignly given new life for the purpose of salvation. This is a gift, which means of grace. It is a work of God, which means it's a sovereign work. This is a work of sovereign grace. In fact, if you were to put this doctrine of regeneration into its theological context, you could equate regeneration, new birth in John chapter 3, with what theologians sometimes call the effectual call of God. Or maybe you've heard it before as irresistible grace, if you're familiar with the acronym. Uh, I think effectual call is probably a better way of describing it, whereby God sovereignly and graciously pulls us out of our sin and our, and our stubborn willfulness against His holiness and brings us to a saving knowledge of Christ. This is the work of new birth. This is regeneration. In fact, it's such a, it's such a clearly uh, work, of, so clearly a work of sovereign grace that we could even say that, that regeneration is our election applied specifically to our hearts. Now, there's a lot to be said about regeneration in John chapter 3, and unfortunately, your pastor gave me less than 24 hours notice, so I can't cover all of it. But, but I, what I want to do is I just want to give you a little bit of overview of the chapter, and then I want to focus in on verses 9 through 15 to see, okay, what is the response that we should have to this doctrine of regeneration? But, but before we get there, just a little bit of overview about this sovereign grace of regeneration. One of the things that we see from, from an overview perspective in the first three verses of this chapter is that sovereign, the sovereign grace of regeneration is a necessity for mankind. We need this work. I mean, when you think about it, Nicodemus came to Christ, and Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. And let me just tell you, if Nicodemus needs to be born again, then we all definitely need to be born again. See, Nicodemus may have been the most religious man of, of, his, of his era. Uh, Nicodemus was, was a, a Pharisee, and not only was he a fastidious Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That's why he was made one of the rulers in the Sanhedrin. And, and not only was he kind of a Pharisee of Pharisees, but in verse 9, or excuse me, verse 10, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel. This was the most prominent Pharisee. This was the most religious Pharisee. This was the, the Pharisee who knew the Scriptures better than any other Pharisee in Jesus' day. 
In fact, from, from history, we, we can surmise that Nicodemus was also a very wealthy man, but with that wealth, he was also a very generous man. If you look at some of the things that are attributed to Nicodemus that he did before this meeting with Christ, it's clear. Nicodemus would have won every humanitarian award that you could ever come up with. So he's the most religious man. He's the most well-taught man from the Old Testament perspective, and he's the most generous man in in terms of mercy ministry and helping those who are in need. And And when he came to Christ, he had this question burning in his heart, have I done enough? And Jesus's answer to Nicodemus is a resounding no. You haven't done enough. None of those things will get you into the kingdom of God. It's not enough. In fact, it's so not enough that you need to be born again and start all over. It's an absolute necessity. The the, the best of human religion cannot produce the new life that's needed to be a part of God's kingdom. The, the, The best faith that Nicodemus could come up with, it wasn't enough. Nicodemus actually, he kind of believed in Jesus. At the very least, he had a favorable view of of Jesus. He came to him and said, oh, we know you're a teacher come from God. For for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So, So he had a positive view of Christ, but he had an insufficient view of Christ because God wasn't with Jesus. Jesus was God. But in terms of the faith that he was able to produce on his own, not even that was enough. The most religious man, maybe even the most worldly religious man who had ever lived up to that point, was not able to do enough for salvation. That's why Jesus said, you must be born Again, literally, you must be born from above. You must be, receive new life, and that new life, it must come down from God. That's what you need for salvation. This, this sovereign grace, it's an absolute necessity. And, and Jesus is also clear in his interaction with Jesus that this sovereign grace is not only necessary for man, but this sovereign grace is also clearly a work of God. I mean, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, I think Nicodemus was being a little cheeky here, okay? I think, I, I, I think he kind of got what Jesus was saying, and he's saying, wait a minute, Jesus. What you're saying is it's impossible for me to do anything, and I don't know that I'm buying that. But that's exactly what Jesus was saying, and it's true. Jesus makes it clear that, that, that you must be born of God. And he reminds Nicodemus, hey, Nicodemus, this is not all that unusual a concept. When, when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit, there's a lot of different interpretations of that. L- let me just cut through all those interpretations. This goes back to the prophet Ezekiel. When Ezekiel predicted, when God through Ezekiel predicted the new covenant, the new covenant promise that you will be washed clean of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. When, when Jesus says you must be born of water and spirit, he's saying, Nicodemus, remember, this is a new covenant promise. 
This is a work God must do to wash you clean and to give you His Spirit. You need your heart of stone removed and a heart of flesh implanted in you, and God's the only one who can do that. That's the whole point that Jesus is making here. And and not only does He make this point, but He also makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is the unique agent of this work. He talks about the wind. You don't know where the wind's coming from or where it's going. All you can do is experience its effect. And, and he says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, so here we see that this work of regeneration, it's a work of the Spirit. And also we see that this work of regeneration, it is a sovereign work because we can't control it. I can't manipulate the wind. I can't do anything to control the wind. All I can do is feel the wind. Jesus' point here is this is a sovereign work of God. Sinful men and women, they need a new life that can only come from God, and he's the one who has to sovereignly supply it. And so in John chapter 3, we learn that this work of new birth, this work of regeneration, it's a sovereign work of God, and it is a necessary work for man if we want to enter into the kingdom of God. There's, there's nothing that we could do to earn salvation. There's nothing that we could do to drum up the faith that would lead us to Christ. We must be born again by the sovereign grace of God. That's the doctrine of regeneration. And as we focus specifically on verses 9 through 15, it starts to become clear that Nicodemus responded to this doctrine of regeneration in a similar way that I respond to bananas. His body tried to reject it. His flesh tried to reject it. He had a, a, a doctrinal allergy to the sovereignty of God in his salvation. And we see this in the response of Nicodemus and the response of Christ to Nicodemus. So as we go through these verses together this afternoon, we're going to see that John chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, it it dissects Nicodemus' response to regeneration into three parts that help us to understand how we should respond to this doctrine of sovereign grace. And, and, and we see the first part in verse 9, where we find the pride of Nicodemus' response, the, 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 the pride of Nicodemus in the face of God's sovereign grace. In, in other words, in, in this verse, it is confirmed for us that, that Nicodemus is struggling to accept this truth. Here he says, how can these things be? And, and, and I think we can, we can properly interpret this question to mean, how can these things be? I don't think that they're true. I mean, that's, that's basically what Nicodemus is getting at at this point. That, that's his kind of cheeky answer in verse 4, oh, I'm an old man, how am I going to go back into my mother's womb? 
He, he's clearly not receiving this in humility. Even in verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, do not be amazed at this. Do not marvel at this. And I don't think that Nicodemus was marveling in the way we were marveling at God's grace as we were singing his praise. I think Nicodemus is marveling at this in the way where you scratch your forehead and go, this is giving me a headache. And although the text does not specifically say this, the reason why Nicodemus was struggling with the doctrine of regeneration is rooted in his own pride. You see, we're always going to struggle with doctrines that strip us of everything that we might possibly boast about. I mean, Jesus told Nicodemus, hey, you, you've lived the most prodigious religious life of anyone of your entire generation, and it's nothing. You've got to start over. In his pride, Nicodemus didn't like that. In fact, Nicodemus' pride, even in his own salvation, it was being confronted by this teaching on regeneration. Think about it. Nicodemus had taught probably for decades at this point about what you must do to enter into the kingdom of God. He had taught from a Pharisee's perspective about salvation for years and years and years. How many times in the synagogue? How many times in the courtyard of the temple? How many times to to massive gatherings had Nicodemus taught on salvation? And now his entire theology of salvation was crumbling to the ground before Christ. In other words, Nicodemus' man-centered view of salvation was being confronted with the truth of sovereign grace. Elsewhere in John 6, verse 65, Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's just another way of saying you must be born again by the grace of God. And in the same way that people respond in a negative way to John 6, Nicodemus is now responding negatively to this doctrine of regeneration. And I love the way in his commentary how John Calvin describes Nicodemus's response. Listen to what he says. Everything that Nicodemus hears appears monstrous because he does not understand the manner of it so that there is no greater obstacle to us than our own pride. That is, we always wish to be wise beyond what is proper, and therefore we reject with diabolical pride everything that is not explained to our reason, as if it were proper to limit the infinite power of God to our poor capacity. Nicodemus couldn't understand it, and he didn't like it. It assaulted his view of salvation which is why he rejected it. But, but, but today, as we consider Nicodemus' response, one of the things that we have to understand is that the truth of God's salvation does not have to match up with our traditions, our wisdom, our logic, or our theology. The, the truth of salvation is not dependent upon us to be able to figure it out. The truth of God's salvation, it rests squarely on 
the sovereignty of God. Which means, if we're trying to understand God's salvation, the, the, the question is never, does that make sense to me, or is that always the way I've thought of it? Those aren't the questions. The question is, is that what the Bible says? Nicodemus was struggling with that. He was struggling with, with pride in his own view of salvation, and he was struggling with pride in his own view of his self, his being. Nicodemus was being confronted with the reality that there was nothing that he could do to produce this life. There's nothing he could do to atone for his sins. There's nothing that he could do to earn God's grace. And in this way, we're reminded that the biblical truth of salvation is humbling, isn't it? It's humbling. To recognize God's sovereign grace in the Scriptures may be the most humbling reality that there is in the entire universe. The the biblical truth of salvation, it, it humbles us because it reveals that we cannot do a thing for our salvation. We are completely dependent upon God in every way, including to be born again. Sovereign grace strips us of all human pride and self-righteousness. It reminds us that salvation belongs to God. That, by the way, is a truth that you see clearly in Revelation chapter 7. You want to know people who understand salvation? Go to heaven, right? You you want to find somebody who's clear in their soteriology? Go talk to saints who are already in heaven. The cool thing about Revelation chapter 7 is you get to do that. In in Revelation chapter 7 verses 7 through, uh, 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 excuse me, chapter 7 verses 9 through 10, John says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb and clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, I am so glad that I was smart enough to figure out salvation. That's not what they said, is it? They're crying out, I am so glad that God looked through the corridors of time and foresaw my faith. That's not what they're saying either, is it? They are crying out together. I love how it's plural. They are crying out in voices singular. They're crying out in unison. Salvation belongs to our God. That's the doctrine of God's sovereign grace in salvation. And that's the doctrine that Nicodemus was being confronted with in this passage. His pride didn't like it because it's the most humbling reality that there is. The the world reviles this doctrine because what it says about mankind. It says that we're all totally depraved and we cannot be saved on our own. We're not naturally good. We're naturally bad. We're naturally sinners. And if you disagree with me on that, I'd love to open up God's word with you, but I'd also like to take a look at your life. Are you naturally good or have you sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? I know the answer already. 
And I'm the same way. I just am admitting it up front. God's sovereignty and salvation, it reveals all these things. And, and, and some ministries, some churches, even some believers, they don't like this doctrine because of what it means for their ministry. Let me tell you what this means for the ministry of Baltimore Bible Church. God's sovereignty and salvation means you can't save anybody. You couldn't save yourself. You can't save anybody else. All you can do is be faithful. All you can do is proclaim the gospel. All you can do is share the truth with your friends and family members. And then you have to trust the Lord to to use the proclamation of the gospel to save souls. You can't manipulate anybody into the kingdom. You, You can't argue anyone into the kingdom. God's the one who has to save. And there are a lot of people out there that don't want to do ministry trusting God to that level. It's hard. But what we have to recognize is that a prideful response to these truths does not make them any less true. That was certainly the case for Nicodemus. He didn't understand it, and he was responding in all likelihood with pride towards this truth. But that didn't mean it was false. But this leads us to a a second point that I want to consider with you this afternoon. And we find this in verses 10 through 12. Here we want to look at the problem of Nicodemus' response. We saw how he responded in pride, but but now I want to see, here's what the problem with that is. In other words, here's what went wrong, and here's what Jesus points out went wrong as he confronts Nicodemus over his hesitancy about this truth. In fact, one of the things that you're going to see here is that, that Christ confronted Nicodemus rather bluntly, even sharply, for his pride. In fact, I find it very interesting that in these verses, a dialogue between two prominent teachers turns into a monologue from the Lord Jesus Christ. You got, okay, a little theological debate, and then we get to verse 10 and says, Jesus says, no more debate. You listen. You listen. And, and notice how Christ confronts Nicodemus really over his rejection of biblical revelation. Verse 10, Jesus answers him and says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Now what does that mean? Well, he was the most prominent teacher in Israel. What did prominent teachers in Israel teach in those days? The Bible. The Old Testament. When Jesus says, wait a minute, you're the teacher and you don't understand this, he's criticizing him and he's basically saying, you're a teacher and you should understand this. You you should have known the sovereign nature of salvation, Nicodemus, because it's contained all throughout the Old Testament. Earlier, Jesus says, don't be amazed at this. Don't marvel at this. Why are you shocked that I would talk about the the sovereign grace of salvation in this way, Nicodemus? Do you know the Scriptures? Nicodemus might have responded, listen, I've got like half the Scriptures memorized. To which Jesus would have responded, yeah, but you don't know it. I mean, think about what the Old Testament says about salvation. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Psalm 37, 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. 
Hosea 13, 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know, no, have known no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. And we could go on and on and on. The Old, Testament's, uh, the Old Testament is abundantly clear that salvation is a work of God alone. In fact, in Isaiah 43, verse 24, God says to the people of Israel, you have not bought, uh, bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. In other words, look, it's not all this great stuff that you did that's causing me to respond the way that I am. You, you didn't bring me sweet things. You didn't put me in debt to you by your sacrifices, which just as an aside, think about it for a minute. If you believe in any form of work salvation, what work are you going to do that puts the creator in debt to you? What could you do for the God who has given you life and breath and all things that would cause him to turn around and say, actually, yep, you know what, I owe you one. Jesus is telling Israel, or excuse me, Yahweh is telling Israel, there's nothing that you can do. He says, you haven't brought me any of that. You haven't done me anything that, that would put me in debt to you. Instead, he goes on in Isaiah 43 to say, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. This, my friend, this is what we bring to salvation. The only thing that we bring to salvation is the need for salvation. The only thing that we add to God's work of salvation is the sin that makes salvation necessary. That's why God goes on in Isaiah 43 and says, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I love, the, I love the nouns there, the subjects of the verbs. I, I, I. God didn't say, let's work on this together. God didn't say, listen, I'm going to put my hand out and you've got to grab it. God didn't say, listen, I'll do 99, you do the one. He says, I'm going to do it. And when I do it, it's going to be my, for my sake, for my glory. I'm going to get the glory for it. And I will not remember your sins. That's what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign grace in salvation. That's all from the Old Testament. The teacher of Israel should have known this, but he was rejecting biblical revelation by rejecting God's sovereign grace. And not only was he rejecting biblical revelation, but he was also rejecting divine authority. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Literally, you reject it. Now here Jesus is appealing to basically his own authority. He, he, he says, listen, what, what we're talking about, what I am teaching you right now, I am speaking about something that I know. I am bear, bearing witness to you of something that I have firsthand credible testimony about. And yet you're still rejecting my authority. Now it is interesting here that, that Jesus says we have seen these things. We speak of these things. We bear witness. Who's the we? 
Well, some commentators think that Jesus is alluding to the Trinity here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together with one voice declare the truth of regeneration as a necessity for salvation. And, and if that's your interpretation, I, I can tell you this. Theologically, it's absolutely true. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit all agree on their doctrine of salvation. <laughs> there's, there's no debates there. So that's absolutely true. And that might be what Jesus is talking about here. But I think Jesus is talking about something a little bit different. When, when Jesus uses the term we here, I think he's lumping himself in with all the prophets and writers of the Old Testament that I read to you just a moment ago and more. He's basically saying, you're the teacher of Israel. The Old Testament teaches this. I'm teaching this. We bear witness. Who's the we? I think it's the prophets of the Old Testament and the Son of God are together coming to bear witness about these truths for you, and yet you're rejecting us. You're rejecting the Bible, and you're rejecting my authority, which is on par with the Bible. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And, and, and one of the things that we see here is Jesus was teaching these things with divine certitude. Does God ever second guess his own plan for salvation? No. When, when I first uh, came to the church up in Delaware and we were getting started, I decided to preach through the gospel of Mark because I decided, listen, when we get to all these things about sovereignty and salvation and all these things about eschatology, I want my people to hear it from Jesus before they hear it from me. So let's go through the Gospel of Mark. That way, if people are complaining about my preaching, I can tell them, well, you're really just complaining about Jesus. Jesus is basically saying, you're going to reject my authority? And one of the interesting things here is that at the end of verse 11, it says, you do not receive our testimony. The you there in the Greek is plural. It's, it's you referring to more than just one person. Where I grew up, we would translate this, y'all. Y'all do not receive our testimony. That way, people where I'm from wouldn't even laugh at that. They'd be like, amen. <laughs> but one of the things we see here is that Jesus, he's not only speaking to Nicodemus, but he's speaking to all those in Nicodemus's day and beyond who would reject this teaching to say, if you reject the sovereign grace of regeneration, you're rejecting the divine authority of the Son of God. And the problem with Nicodemus, it wasn't intellectual. You don't become the teacher of Israel if you're a dummy. His, his problem wasn't how much information he had. His problem was volitional. It was his will. He didn't understand because he didn't want to understand. It's kind of like when I was growing up and my mom tried to teach me how to do laundry. I didn't understand because I didn't want to understand. <laughs> That's what Nicodemus is doing here. That, that whole bit about, oh, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb? Come on, Nicodemus. You understand what's going on more than that. 
He didn't understand because he didn't want to. He didn't believe because he didn't want to. He was rejecting the authority of God. He's rejecting all the Bible says. He's rejecting the authority of the Son of God. And in the process, he was rejecting spiritual reality. Verse 12, Jesus says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, what's going on here? Well, the earthly things that Jesus is talking about, these are the illustrations that Jesus used earlier in the passage. For instance, being born again. That's, a, that's an illustration, right? We, we need new spiritual life so that we can believe in Christ and be a part of his kingdom. So, so Jesus takes this abstract reality and makes it more concrete by saying, you have to be born again, born from above. It's an illustration that we all understand. We all understand what it means to be born. We all understand that we had nothing to do with our own birth. It's an illustration from everyday life that's meant to illustrate heavenly truths and heavenly principles. Or, or the same with the wind. Jesus compares the Spirit of God to the wind. Listen, the, the wind is not the Spirit. Like, if you go outside and it's windy, that's not the Spirit of God, right? But it is a wonderful illustration, isn't it? Because you can't see the wind. You can only experience the effects of the wind. So, so when the Spirit regenerates somebody, I can't see that, but I can see the fruit of that in the days and months and years to come. This person now believes in Christ. This person is now walking with Christ. This person is starting to look like Christ. I didn't see the Spirit come and rebirth that person, but I see the effects of the Spirit. Jesus takes the illustration of the wind to, to teach us that principle. And now Jesus is stepping back with Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, if I make it as simple as possible for you with this illustration about rebirth and this illustration about the wind, if, if I make it as simple as possible for you and you still resist these truths, if you won't accept the illustration, you'll never accept the principle. That's the point. He was denying reality. Which, by the way, just because you deny reality doesn't mean reality changes. You can, you can say whatever you want about salvation. It doesn't matter what you think. All that matters is what God's Word says. That's the reality. The world can have all these opinions about what it means to be, how about this? The world can have all these opinions about what it means to be married, what it means to be a man, and what it means to be a woman. How confused are we, right? The world can have all these opinions on all these things. It doesn't change the reality of them, though, does it? Nicodemus could deny God's sovereign grace in his heart all he wanted. It wouldn't change the reality of these heavenly truths. That's why Nicodemus who would not accept the truth of regeneration, he had a big problem. He was rejecting the Bible, he was rejecting the authority of God, and he was rejecting reality. And to do that is a big problem. This leads us to to one last point that I want to consider with you. And that's what we're going to call the proper response. 
We saw the pride in Nicodemus' response. We saw the problem with it, denying all these things. Okay, how do you respond to this truth? I find it interesting in these last several verses, Nicodemus fades off into the background. Jesus continues teaching all the way down to verse 21. Nicodemus is not responding anymore. Nicodemus is out of the picture as an example of the wrong response. Now Jesus steps up to instruct us on the right response. And I think this is interesting because you think, okay, regeneration, being born again, what's the application of that? What's, what's the right implication? Like, like, how do I apply this to my life? That's the that's that we, we often want the Bible to work for us instead of us working for the Bible. So we always run straight to the question, well, how do I apply this? How would this be practical for me? Not always the most helpful question to ask. And in this case, though, you say, okay, well, if I must be born from above and I can't do it, it's a work of sovereign grace, how then do I respond to this? And the answer is as simple as one word, Faith. That Jesus provides the answer to the question of how we apply this doctrine when he essentially says that we need to believe it and believe him. If Jesus says it's true, you start to apply this doctrine to your life by simply believing what Jesus has said. And, 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 and notice, notice how Jesus makes it clear that part of what we need to believe in this teaching is is we need to come to the place where we submissively believe the authority of Christ. Verse 13, Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Nicodemus, where else are you going to learn about heavenly truths? Where are you going to learn about it? Who are you going to talk to that's got the authority to speak directly from heaven into this situation? That's one of the reasons why earlier I read for you from Revelation 7. I wanted you to get to the perspective of heaven on salvation. You got all these saints who are in heaven now, and they say salvation belongs to God, not us, right? Well, here's the thing. They're not coming back, right? There's no one who's ascended into heaven who's now going to come back. Like, like, like you die, and that's it. You stand before the judgment, and if you're in the Lord, you're with the Lord. That's it. You don't come back. Thankfully, rich man and Lazarus makes it clear. Nobody else is going to come back from heaven to tell us these truths from heaven. What we need is somebody who's been in heaven. We need someone who's been with God. We need someone who can authoritatively speak on these truths to come down to earth and reveal them to us. Who could possibly do that? Of course, the answer is Christ. Or, or, or as Christ refers to himself here, as the Son of Man. Now, it's interesting. Sometimes when we read the phrase, the title, Son of Man, we think that's highlighting Jesus' humanity. We know that Jesus is truly God and truly man. So you read Son of Man, and your tendency might be to say, hey, this is highlighting the humanity of Christ. Well, that's actually not the case. The, the title Son of Man is actually coming from Daniel chapter 7. 
In Daniel chapter 7, the, the prophet receives a vision of the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and one like a Son of Man coming down from heaven and be, being given all authority by the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man receives the authority over the kingdom from the Ancient of Days. And so when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he is highlighting not, not necessarily his humanity, he's highlighting his authority. Nicodemus, you came here wanting to know how you can get in the kingdom of God. You know who you need to talk to? The Son of Man, because he has authority over the kingdom of God. And guess who the Son of Man is? It's me. I've come from heaven with this truth. I speak authoritatively. If you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you must believe my authority. Jesus is the only one who can authoritatively teach on the truth of salvation in this way. He's the son of man. He possesses a divine authority that must be believed in order to understand the true nature of God's sovereignty in our salvation and in our regeneration. And in addition to his authority, we can also trust in the atoning work of Christ. Verse 14 Jesus says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is actually from the book of Numbers, Numbers 21, 9. God was afflicting the people of Israel in their wilderness wanderings. He sent snakes, which, which by the way, I'm, I'm also in the evenings preaching through Genesis 3. This evening, I'm actually going to leave here and go preach on Genesis 3 and the curse on the snake, the curse on the serpent, which, which ladies, if you hate snakes, you have a biblical reason to do so, okay? That is, that is justified, okay? But God sent the snakes as a judgment on Israel, poisonous snakes. They are biting the people. The people are dying. Moses intercedes for mercy. And Yahweh says, okay, make a bronze serpent, put it on a big pole, and anybody who looks at the serpent will be healed. What else do they have to do? No, that's it. Well, what medicine should they take? No, no, just look at the serpent. That's all? That's all? Moses builds the pole, he puts a serpent on top of the pole, and anybody who looks at it is healed by the mercy of God. But by the way, don't you know it? There are Israelites who refuse to look at the snake. In the same way that there are those who refuse to look to Christ. There were those who refused just to look at the thing. What's the point? Jesus is telling Nicodemus, look, Nicodemus, you asked me, how could all these things be? And now you're struggling to understand, how could God really save people by nothing besides pure grace? Here's the answer. In the same way that that serpent was lifted up for the salvation of Israel, the Son of Man, me, I'm gonna be lifted up, not on a pole, but on a cross. I'm gonna die on that cross for the sins of many. I'm gonna be in the grave three days. I'm gonna be raised from the dead. So that, verse 15, 
Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus, you came here wanting to know how you could have eternal life. I told you you had to be born again. It's a work of God's sovereign grace. You said, how could that possibly be? How could God save people based solely on grace and not on their works? Here's the answer. It's based on my work at the cross. That's the point. That's the answer to Nicodemus' question. And that's the right response to the doctrine of regeneration. The right response to this teaching about being born again is to believe what Jesus is teaching and trust in what he accomplished for us at the cross. There's, there's nothing more that sinners can do to save themselves. It is a sovereign grace of Christ and the only res- right response to grace is faith. Nicodemus didn't have faith, though. Not in John chapter 3. He had an allergic reaction. You might say, well, did he ever get over that theological allergy? Actually, I think he did. It's interesting. If you go to John chapter 7, the whole Sanhedrin's gathered together to get Jesus. Okay, how are we going to kill this guy? Nicodemus was the only one in John 7, 50. He was the only one to stand up and say, wait a minute, guys, our laws don't allow us to just kill people we don't like. And they scorned him. Oh, what are you, a Galilean too? Is what they said. So we have signs of life there. Then if you fast forward to John 19, after the crucifixion of Christ, do you remember who came with Joseph of Arimathea? It's Nicodemus. John 19, 39 says that he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight to help prepare Christ's body for burial. Actually, in history, you can read from a third century document about Nicodemus. It's not certainly reliable as reliable as Scripture. So, so we, we can't take it with the same certainty that we take Scripture, but, but it is a reliable third century document that, that goes on to tell us what happened to, to Nicodemus after the resurrection. And this document, dating all the way back to the third century, it says that after Christ was raised from the dead, Nicodemus came out as a follower of Christ. And he went from being the teacher of Israel to being a preacher of Christ. You know what happened though? He lost everything. He lost everything. His wealth was stripped from him when he became a follower of Christ. His position and title was stripped from him when he became a follower of Christ. Actually, this historical document would say that, that, that he was actually exiled out of the city where he continued to preach Christ until ultimately he was martyred as a follower of Christ. There's actually a heartbreaking story in this document of, of after Nicodemus' death, one of his daughters was out uh, rummaging through the garbage pile looking for food, and, and the document says she was rummaging through dung piles trying to find undigested kernels of grain for their family to eat. That's how starving they were. And, 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 and one of the Religious leaders from Jerusalem saw her and stopped with a heart to help her and said, young lady, what are you doing? And she said, I'm starving to death. And the religious leader says, what family are you from? And she says, my dad was Nicodemus. 
To which the religious leader said, then you're getting what you deserve and left her. Nicodemus lost everything for following Christ. But here's the thing. All those things he had, none of that was going to get him into the kingdom of God, was it? He lost everything, but through regeneration, he gained Christ. The same teacher of Israel who initially rejected the doctrine of rebirth was rebirthed by the grace of God. Look, I'm always going to have to avoid bananas. You ever have me over one of these Sundays and you have dessert? No banana pie, please. I'm always going to have to avoid it. But Nicodemus got over his allergy. By God's grace, he came to love the sovereign grace that he had initially rejected. We pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would uh, use your word to sanctify us and grow us in conformity to the image of Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.